Okay, you should have an outline in front of you. The title of this evening's session is Giving an Answer for the Hope. How to answer hard questions with good news. We have the joy and the privilege and the mission as a church to declare the praises of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, haven't we? And in addition to that, we are in our two years of heightened evangelism. Mission Month is coming up in like two weeks. And that will give us, we hope and pray, much more opportunity to speak about Jesus as a church family and with our 321 friends and all the rest of that. But I wonder if you've ever had this experience. You're speaking to a non-Christian friend and a topic comes up, something that's in the news perhaps, and you think to yourself, I really, really hope they don't ask what I think about that. Have you ever had that? Happened to me the other day, I was in the pub with a few friends and one of them happened to mention a different local church in our city, uh, which they discovered holds complementarian beliefs. That is, they believe that the elders and the preachers of their church should be men, which is what we do too. And it was clear that my friends thought this was rather strange and they were a bit disapproving of this other church. And I, to my shame, at that moment thought to myself, I really, really hope they don't ask me what I think about it. Now, as it happened, the conversation moved on quite quickly. I wasn't able to say anything or perhaps I was just too much of a coward to interrupt the flow. But have you ever had something like that where you think, I really hope that these friends of mine don't find out what I really believe? because they'll think I'm crazy, or they'll stop being my friends, or it'll just be massively awkward. That's what we're gonna be thinking about this evening. We're gonna to remember together that the gospel, including all of its implications, is good news of great joy. And we're gonna think about how we can answer hard questions, the questions that we perhaps feel embarrassed of, or ashamed by, scratch that, reverse it, or just not sure how to respond with real hope. And my prayer is that uh, as we head into not only Mission Month, but for the rest of our lives, this will help us prepare to speak about Jesus freely and joyfully. So the first thing we're going to think about is the joy of giving an answer. And we're going to do that by returning to a passage that we looked at last term in 1 Peter. I wonder if you turn in your Bible to 1 Peter 3. I'm aware that not everyone was with us for the whole series or, or for, for any of it, some of you. Um, so 1 Peter 3, don't know where that is. It's in the Bible. Someone shout out page number. No one knows where it is. Thank you. 1290, was that? No, hang on. Doesn't make sense. 1219, that makes much more sense. Thank you. 1290 is out the back somewhere. Right, um, I'm going to read from chapter 3, verse 13 to 16. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear, do not be frightened, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now you can see there in verse 15 the idea that as Christian people we should be prepared to give an answer to those who ask us about the hope that we have. But it's important to think about that verse in context because the preparation that we have to do is not first and foremost about learning good answers to hard questions, although we'll be thinking a bit about that a bit later on. In the context of the verse, it's a much deeper and I think much more liberating preparation that we have to do. Let's look at this passage closely together. And the first thing to see is the context, which is that Peter is addressing people who are scared who fear what people can do to them because they are already currently suffering for being Christians. 
And so the idea of piping up and speaking for Jesus is a very scary thing. How does Peter help them with that fear? He tells them three things in verses 13 to 14. First, in verse 13, he tells them that they cannot come to any ultimate harm. If they are eager to do good, if they are the Lord's people who are trying to live the Lord's way, their eternal safety is guaranteed. We might read verse 13, you know, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good and think, well, lots of people, that's the problem. But this is the equivalent of Paul in Romans chapter 8 saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? Again, the answer is, well, loads of people are against us. But the point is, if God is for us, no matter who is against us, we can be sure of ultimate deliverance. We were thinking about this this morning, weren't we, in Psalm 1, if you're here with us, that we are blessed and we find out that blessing in its fullness at the end when the Lord vindicates uh, the way that his people have walked in righteousness. It's the same here. Lots of people might want, us to do us, might want to do us harm in the short term, but in the long term, we can be sure of God's deliverance and his vindication and his acceptance. Second, he says in verse 14 that if we suffer for doing good, we are blessed. If you remember from our readings in 1 Peter last term, that blessing is to do with walking in Jesus' footsteps and being counted as one of God's people. Remember Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are blessed because it's a sure sign that they belong to God's precious and chosen people. And although Peter took some time to learn this, you remember he denied Jesus at the beginning, In Acts chapter 5, when he was beaten for speaking about Jesus, he went away rejoicing that he was counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. So our long-term deliverance is guaranteed. Even when we suffer, we're blessed. And thirdly, as a consequence, he says there is nothing to truly fear. The quote at the beginning of verse 14 is from, end of verse 14, is from the book of Isaiah when Isaiah's people were threatened with invasion from Aram and Israel. Uh, if you, I don't know if anyone was with us on Christmas Eve, but we actually interviewed King Ahaz. We got King Ahaz in to talk about that. King Ahaz, when that happened, was afraid. And so in his fear, he abandoned his faith in God and did what any other king would do. He made an alliance with a bigger and stronger power, with Assyria. But fearing what everyone else fears is no longer what God's people need to do. We don't need to fear what everyone else is scared of because we are in the hands of an even bigger and stronger and kinder power. Let me uh, share with you these words from Matthew 10. They're quite hard to see, sorry. Matthew 10, 26 to 33. If you can't read it, flick there in your Bibles. But let me uh, read those to you. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, do not be afraid of them, that is, enemies in the world who want to do you harm. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. 
But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. And this passage, uh, in line with 1 Peter, brings us to the preparation that we need to do, which is to fear the Lord. We see that in two places in the verses in 1 Peter. One is slightly hidden at the end of verse 15 in that word respect. So it says, uh, uh, what does it say? Can't read. I actually can't read that from this distance. That's a bit of a concern. Do this with gentleness and respect. There we go. That word respect is the same word as the word fear in verse 13, exactly the same Greek word. And this is what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 10, I think. The antidote to fear of man is not just to screw up our courage and just be really brave. No, it's to redirect our fear to where it should be. We shouldn't fear people because they cannot do us any lasting harm. We should fear God because he can. And you can see in Matthew 10, the idea is not you should evangelise because otherwise the big scary God will come and smite you. No, it's because the big scary God is your loving father who holds you in his hand. Strangely enough, fearing God, that is being aware of him, wanting to please him, being aware that he is the authority, he's the boss, he's the one whose approval really matters, not the person standing in front of you. When we truly fear God, did you notice in verse 31 of Matthew 10, what does that mean? It means we don't need to be afraid. Isn't it weird that Jesus says those two things? Be afraid of God and then you won't be afraid. We don't need to fear what people might think if they find out what we really believe. We don't need to fear looking stupid or not having a really good answer. We don't even need to fear harder consequences like losing our friends or our job or even our lives. Of course, that is real suffering and it all really hurts and it all really matters. But it's not the be all and end all of our existence because if we fear God and have him as our father in heaven, then we can have hope and we don't need to be afraid. And Peter reminds us how it is we have God as our Father in heaven at the beginning of 1 Peter 3, verse 15, when he says, In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. There are all sorts of things that we can put as the Lord of our lives, aren't there? As the thing we're building our lives around, the person we're ultimately trying to please, the goal that we are trying to achieve with our lives. If our Lord is the approval of our friends, we will not speak for Jesus when the answer is unpalatable. If our Lord is a successful career or a comfortable life, then the result will be the same. But if we've set apart Christ as Lord, then we want to please him. And we will speak the truth knowing it's good and right and true, and that's what he wants. And whatever the consequences to those other goals that we might have, we will have the joy of knowing that we've pleased the Lord of the universe. Now, that helps us a lot, I think, in terms of being ready to give answers to questions we might be asked. What's the best preparation we can do for that? We might think that the preparation we need to do is to really dig deep into those questions ourselves, to get really good, sort of clear, logical, rational answers for why we believe what we believe, and to smoothly and skillfully turn the conversation like a ninja so that our friends are slowly convinced of the logic of what we say. Now, I should make it clear, it is really important to really investigate what the Bible says about certain topics, especially if they're controversial, so that we ourselves become convinced that what the Bible says is right and true and good. 
And there is some skill to be learned in how to have meaningful and helpful conversations, and we'll do a bit of that later. But the main preparation we need to do is to set apart Christ as Lord, to know that he is good and true, and that he is the one who we want to please. Someone who knows all the right answers and is a conversational ninja, but doesn't really care about pleasing Christ, and they will never speak effectively for him. On the other hand, someone who loves Jesus a lot, but who's a bit clumsy in their speech or says, I don't know a lot, is in a really good place to be used by God in evangelism. He is, after all, the God whose power is shown in weakness. And so the most important preparation we can do for Mission Month and the whole of our lives is cultivating a humble heart that loves the Lord Jesus. And that's the key to what Peter thinks our life of evangelism is going to be about. It's about living hopeful lives. Because if people are going to ask us about the reason for the hope we have, then it stands to reason that they will have noticed something about us that seems hopeful, right? Otherwise, they'll never ask. Now, I think it's important to say that this doesn't mean that Peter wants us to be all sunshine and smiles and optimism. There will be struggles and sadness in every Christian life, of course, and we're all different people. But the way we respond to those struggles and the future hope that we have when those struggles will be at an end ought to be strange and distinctive in our world. When all our other hopes are dashed, there can be a bedrock of joy in Christ, knowing that we are his people and that we have an inheritance stored up in heaven that can never perish, spoil, nor fade, as Peter says in chapter 1, or uh, that we can be like a tree planted by streams of water, like we saw in Psalm 1 this morning. Now, you're going to think a bit more about that over um, uh, your meal. I'll give you some discussion questions to think about over the meal. But uh, let's finish uh, Peter's train of thought, because next he talks about the method, uh, which is gentleness. The method of giving an answer is gentleness. See that in verse 15? As well as giving an answer with respect, that is, with the fear of the Lord, we're called on to speak with gentleness. Now, if you remember from 1 Peter, if you were with us for that series, the idea of gentleness isn't to do with being sort of softly spoken. And it doesn't mean being a doormat and not sticking up for yourself. Wives are called to be gentle in the beginning of 1 Peter 3, but that's not about a timid personality. It's about a joyfully humble character. And gentleness is the path that Jesus himself walked in 1 Peter chapter 2. In chapter 2, as Peter remembers Jesus going to the cross, he says he didn't retaliate. He didn't insult anyone. He didn't fight back. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That is gentleness. And think about how Jesus responded to hard questions when they came up. Uh, against him uh, in the Gospels. He wasn't rude and aggressive, but he wasn't shy and retiring either. He simply told people the truth. He did it skillfully, he did it kindly, but he did it from a position of humble trust in his Father. He didn't fight fire with fire. He was gentle. That's what gentleness means. And that brings us to the result. You may um, have read some books on evangelism. I've read quite a few books on evangelism. Uh, And some of these books promise a sort of new skill or a new way of doing things that the author says this will bring about better results. You'll be more persuasive, you'll be more appealing, and they say, I managed to convert 45 people last week with this amazing technique. And maybe there's something to that. But I want you to notice the result that Peter promises his people when they give an answer for the hope. It's in verse 16. 
He says, you've got to keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So what is the result that Peter expects when we give an answer for the hope that we have? Malice and lies. That's what you should expect. 1 Peter is a very, very realistic book. It doesn't give us any confidence that if we follow Jesus, we will win the culture war or anything like that. No. Peter is saying that following Jesus and speaking for him as a church is the means by which people will become Christians. But it's also the means by which we'll invite suffering and persecution, slander and malice into our lives. Remember that Jesus himself, the most courageous, the most knowledgeable, the most skillful conversationalist ever to live, did not convince everyone. That's a slight understatement, isn't it? In fact, his answers to hard questions took him to the cross. So there are no guarantees that by speaking up we'll avoid suffering. And if that's true, we might think, well, why do it? Well, it's simply because it leads to God's glory. And that is the result we want. In verse 16, it says that people who speak against us will be ashamed of their slander. That's a theme that comes up again and again in 1 Peter. And the key statement, I know you've looked at it already this term, is chapter 2, verse 11 to 12. Look back there, page before, chapter 2, verse 11 to 12. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, if we are living good lives, that is, following Jesus, walking in his ways, living the life of blessing that we saw this morning, speaking his truth, we will be accused of doing wrong and we will be slandered. But that's not the end of the story. One day, when God visits us, when Christ returns, the Christian life and the Christian gospel will be vindicated as the right one. We saw that, one, uh, Psalm 1, 5 and 6. And on that day, every mocking and malicious voice will be silenced and put to shame. But Peter also holds out hope that some of those mocking and malicious voices will be silenced before that day. That some people will turn and trust in Jesus before it's too late through the gentle hopeful, God-glorifying witness of his people. That's our prayer for our 321 friends and for Mission Month and for the whole of our lives, isn't it? And it is a prayer that is answered. I've done this exercise many times before and it's always fun. Uh, it's worth doing again. I'm sorry if, you've, you know, if I've done this for you before to convince us. I want you to think about the person in your life, if you're a Christian, the person in your life who is most influential in you coming to know the Lord Jesus. Just think about the person in your life who's most influential about them. Okay, I'd like you to put your hand up if that person was a fantastically skillful evangelist who was able to answer every question that you had and seemed to know everything about the gospel. Put your hand up if that person was just a kind and loving friend or family member who just shared their life with you. Okay. You're not special, Okay. Do you know what I mean? If that can save you, it can save anyone because you're not special and you're pretty useless, a lot of you. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just saying what the Bible says, right? <laughs> so if a loving, kind and family, fam, friend or family member who just shared their life with you but who wasn't great at sharing the gospel can save you, then you can be God's instrument to save anybody else. Does that make sense? It worked for us so it can work for everyone else. So let's uh, pray that it does. Okay, I want you to... Um, 
just flip over past the discussion questions. You can come back to those later. Those are for talking about um, on uh, your tables while you're having your tea. And so more briefly, in the last 10 minutes, we're going to think about the practice of giving an answer. Now, what is our goal when someone asks a hard question or brings up a tricky point or mentions something uh, controversial? Uh, someone, it was Joe, I might as well just say it was Joe Sandwick, um, pointed me to a really helpful thought. What we're aiming to do is to talk about Jesus without changing the subject. That's what we're going to try and do, is to talk about Jesus without changing the subject. Now, getting that goal in our mind keeps us from two mistakes that we might make. One is that we just keep talking and talking and chatting without ever mentioning Jesus. And that's obviously a bit of a mistake. But the other mistake that we might make is we do the, you know, someone mentions something about, you know, something they've seen in the news that's vaguely related to Christian things, and we take a deep breath, and we do the big gear change, and we go, boom, and we bombard them with the gospel. Now, God loves a splurger. So if you're a splurge, you know, Lord love you. It's, it's better than saying nothing, right? Um, but it's often quite counterproductive uh, people will get the impression that you're not really interested in what they're interested in and you're just wanting to just get this thing off your chest, right? So can we do better? How can we talk about Jesus without changing the subject? Uh, let me suggest a few ideas. And as we go through, I'm going to throw up a few examples of what that might look like. Um, I did this session with the growth groups at the beginning of term, and I asked them over Christmas to email me some questions that they'd had from people that they would, didn't really know how to answer. So I'm going to use their examples, uh, but you can think of your own roundtables later if you like. Um, so some ideas about how we talk about Jesus without changing the subject. First thing is, is uh, ask questions. It's very important to understand where our friends are coming from when they raise topic or ask questions of us. And the simplest way to do that is to ask questions in return. Genuinely take an interest in people and see how they came to think how they do. What kind of questions might you ask? It'll depend on the person, on the topic. But here are some ideas. You could simply ask, well, why do you ask? So if someone says, you know, what do you think? You're, you're a Christian. What do you think about the whole transgender thing? Why do you ask is a really, really important question. It might be that they're genuinely wanting to know a Christian response in quite a neutral, open way. Or it could be that they're already angry with you because they think you know what you're going to say. So give them the opportunity just to tell you why. What do you think about it? That's another question you can ask. What do you think? I wonder if we often fear that if we don't say something right away and get our sort of two penithin, then the opportunity will be missed forever. But I don't think that's true. Slow down a bit and get to know how your friend sees the world. Wear their glasses for a bit. Wear their spectacles and say, okay, how do you see the world? Get to know where they're coming from. What do you think about that? Or another question you might ask is, how long have you been thinking about this? How did you come to think that way? It's important to know what kind of journey your friend's been on. Have you always believed that or have you changed your mind in recent years? If so, why? What changed your mind? So, for example, one of the growth group members asked um, because she said that she knew lots of people who were into sort of spiritualism, consulting spirits and angels through mediums and things like that, and she didn't really know what to, to think or to say about that. What kind of questions might you ask? You might ask, you know, how long have you been into this? Was it something that you did as a family when you were a child, or is it something that you've come to recently? If so, well, what got you into it? Was it an experience or some teaching from someone? And what are you getting out of it? What does it give you? The point, the reason you ask those questions, apart from just it's good to be interested in people, is that people might have very, very different reasons for asking a question. 
For someone who's into spiritualism and consulting mediums, it could be, be just something they've always grown up with. They don't really believe it, but it's something that brings them comfort. It could be the equivalent of going to their local parish church for them. For someone else, it could be that they are massively scared and stressed because they've had a really weird experience. They don't know what to do with it. And you'd speak very differently to those two people, wouldn't you? So ask questions. Then if you can, probe further. That is, if there's a way of making the questions a little more pointed and a little more thought-provoking, that can often be very helpful. You see Jesus, Jesus do this all the time. He answers a question with a question, which sort of gets under people's skin a little bit and helps them um, put their own beliefs under a little bit of scrutiny. Now, I will admit this is quite difficult. And you think, lots of books that say, do what Jesus does. You think, well, yeah, he was sort of Jesus. Uh, so don't get too stressed about this. But if you can ask a few more probing questions, that's often helpful. So for our spiritualism example, you might ask things like, okay, so you believe in spirits and angels. Do you think that they're all good? Could some of them be wanting to do you harm? And how, how would you know? Or you could ask, do you think anyone's in charge of these spirits? Are you in charge of those spirits? Is someone else in charge of them? Do you think you can control them? Does that worry you at all? Or someone else um, asked a question about uh, people who asked, why should we take notice of the Bible when it's such an old book? Does it really have anything relevant to say? You might start by asking questions like this. Well, ha have you read the Bible recently? What, what's your history with it? Were you ever taught it at school? Do you know what's in it? Do you, know, do you still read it today? And then a more probing question might be, what specific teaching in the Bible do you think is outdated? Could you share one with me? Or you might ask, what do you mean by outdated? Do, are, are you a person who thinks that every new idea is better than the old ideas? Do you think that we're making progress as a society so that new ideas are always better? Or are there still things we can learn from people in the past? You know, do you think there's something to be learned from wise people in previous ages generally? Just ask the kind of question that might just get under their skin a little bit and make them stop and think, oh, do I really have a good reason for believing this or is this just something I have always believed? If you struggle to think of questions like that, I think that's okay. I mean, don't, don't hang yourself up thinking, oh no, I haven't got the right question. Because the important thing is to get, love, love that person, ask the question, see how they see the world. And then this, this next point, which is to explain how you see things differently. If you can't get the middle step, then don't worry about it too much. We really need to explain how we see things differently and then why. And I think I'd advise you not to try and say too much. You don't have to explain the whole gospel in one go. But as you've worn someone else's glasses for a while and sort of got to know how they see the world, let them wear yours. Let them see how you view the world and then ex uh, crucially explain why you believe that you see the world that way. It's important for people to see that you believe these things not primarily because you just happen to think differently or because you've got ideas of your own or because this is what I grew up with, but because you're a Christian and you've come to believe this for yourself. What does that mean for um, sort of postures and helpful things you might uh, take away with you? Firstly, be humble. Don't give the impression that you're super clever or you've got things worked out because I hate to tell you this, you know. Um, you can say, you can say to your friends, I don't really know much about that. Or I'm not 100% clear in my own mind, actually, and that's fine. And you can point to the fact that you're going to get your answers from the Bible and not from anywhere else. See, I'm not really sure about that. I know that I, I'm going to take my answers from the Bible on it because that's uh, what I believe and that's who I trust. But I need to go and get some help on that because I don't really know. That's fine. Secondly, be joyful. 
What I mean by that is give the impression that you'll think you think your answer is good news and not something to be embarrassed of or ashamed by. Then again, embarrassed by or ashamed of. I guess what we're talking about tonight is traditionally called apologetics. That's from the Greek word, word apologia, which means a speech in defense of something. Unfortunately, the English word apologetics means being sorry. Uh, don't be apologetic in that sense. Don't be sorry. Don't be ashamed of your answer. Don't give the impression that in saying potentially controversial things that you really wish the Bible didn't say that, but oh, here we are. Believe that it's good news. And if you don't believe that it's good news, talk it over with other Christian friends. Ask your real food leader. Come and ask one of the elders. Get yourself convinced that it's good news. Thirdly, find points of connection. There's likely to be something that you agree on, something that your friend has said that you can say, yes, I want that too. Or yes, I think God cares about that as well. If you can show your friend that God cares about what they care about, or that what they're trying to get is actually provided by the gospel, that can be really helpful and compelling. I'll give some examples in a second. But finally, point to Jesus. Remember, our goal here is to talk about Jesus without changing the subject. And that's because our friends are not going to see the world the way we see it without coming to know Jesus as their Lord. And even more importantly, it is not our goal to persuade people to our point of view. That's not our goal. It is not our goal to persuade people to our way of life. That's not our goal. We'll just make a lot of sort of perfectly respectable Christian, uh, sort of churchgoers. Our goal is to bring them face to face with their saviour so that they might repent and believe and have eternal life. That's the goal. We're not here to win an argument. And I know and when I was, I say when I was your age, yeah, let's go for it. I'm old enough to say this. When I was your age, I really wanted to win arguments. I was annoying as all heck. I'm sorry I was. I probably, maybe I still am, but I really, really wanted to win arguments. And I was good at it. And I was sort of, you know, I could take people down. And it was not, had no help at all. Do you know what I mean? Don't care about winning arguments. Care about winning people, care about Jesus. We're here to help people love and trust him, not to people be impressed that we know everything. So back to that spiritualism example. It might be a very different thing depending on what the person has said to your earlier questions, but you might find yourself saying something like this. Do you know, I actually believe in spirits and angels myself. In the Bible, it says that there are powerful personal beings that do have an impact on our world. And I can see why the idea of getting in touch with those beings might help you feel a little bit more in control. But you know, I've become convinced there's a better option. I'm a Christian because I believe it brings me into a relationship with Jesus, who is in charge of all those spirits and angels, the good ones and the bad ones. And so I don't need to try and manipulate the spirit world, which, by the way, I think is really dangerous. I get to pray and trust Jesus that he's in charge of everything and he always does good. Or what about that question of whether you can trust the Bible? You might say something like this. Look, I want to get at the truth just like you do. I want to know what's really going on in our world and how to live well. And you know, I've become convinced that the Bible is still the best explanation for why the world is like it is. And the fact that it's old just means it stood the test of time. Millions of people over our world still turn to it every day. But actually, the real reason I read the Bible is that it introduced me to Jesus. And the reason I trust it is because I trust him. I believe he's real and that he's a wonderful saviour. And so I love to read the Bible because I love him. Someone else asked about what to say when someone you know is grieving the loss of a loved one. What do you say in that situation? Now, obviously, that's a slightly different situation. It probably won't be the time to ask a lot of probing questions. It'll be good just to spend time with that person 
ask them a bit about the person they've lost and what that person meant to them. Ask them if there's anything you can do to help in the weeks to come. But if you get the chance, you might want to say something simple like this. Losing a loved one is so hard, isn't it? I'm so sad for you. I'm so sorry for your loss. Look, you know I'm a Christian. I don't pretend to have all the answers about why this has happened. But I know that in my times of sadness and grief, I found great comfort in the teachings of Jesus. You know, he wept at the grave of a friend too. He knows what it means to grieve. But the Bible also says that he alone can bring hope in the face of death. And, and when the time's right, I'd love to explain that a bit further to you. Or what about my own example when my friends spoke about the other church in Lancaster and the role of men and women? I could ask a few questions about what they thought about it, but perhaps what I should have said is this. Actually, I think my church would agree with the one you're mentioning. We believe that the Bible says that men and women are equally made in the image of God, but they have different and complementary roles to play. And that actually, that's the best way for us to work together and also enjoy our differences. And you know, Jesus' teaching and what he came to do was actually massively liberating and revolutionary for both men and women, and I just love that about it. Now, I want you to know I've never been that articulate in my entire life about anything <laughs> as well, right? But I'm just trying to get something across to you that says, does those force things, you know, be humble, be joyful, believe it's good news, find a point of connection that says, hey, do you know we agree about that? And crucially, point to Jesus and say, I'm getting my answers from him, right? And that brings me to the final tip, leave the door open. Say to someone, would you, would you like to know more about that? Would it help if I explain things a bit further? Would you like to read the Bible with me one day? Would you like to come to church and meet some other people who believe the same things? You don't have to do everything in one conversation, but give a way for the conversation to continue, either there or then, or at a later date. Well, I hope this has been helpful as a sort of a starter to think about these things, particularly as we gear up for Mission Month. And before I hand over to Joe, I want to mention a few uh, resources that can help us think uh, further about this, if these would be helpful to you. Honest Evangelism by Rico Tice. Uh, if you haven't read that, I think it's the best single small book available on evangelism. Really, really helpful. Um, good on uh, how painful it is to share the gospel with people and why we should go for it anyway. Um, questioning Evangelism by Randy Newman, not the guy that wrote the music for Toy Story, different Randy Newman. Um, oh, it might be the same guy. No, I don't think it is. Um, he's very good there about how to uh, ask questions well of people. So it's more of a training in a skill of how to answer, uh, ask questions well in response to questions to help people uh, think about their own thoughts and think about their own beliefs and to help uh, point people to Jesus. Uh, Making Faith Magnetic by Dan Strange is really good on those points of connection. So what is our world looking for? What are people in our society and people all over the world, what are they looking for? And how can we show them that the, the gospel brings a better version of what they're looking for already? Okay. And then the Christian gospel by, by Tony Payne is just a really simple explanation of the Christian gospel. It's good, good well titled in one sense. Um, it's the kind of thing that you can read just to say, okay, what do I believe? Let's get myself really clear about the basics. Or it's the kind of thing you can put in someone's hand and say, uh, you'll never understand what I think about Manchester City. Why did that come into my head? Without knowing what I think about Jesus, so why don't you read that? Okay? I don't know why anyone would care about what Christians think about Manchester City. Right, uh, I'm going to pray. And then it's back to you, is it? Great, I'm going to pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us in the gospel. Thank you that living in uh, Jesus' way is the way of blessing like we saw this morning. Thank you that you guarantee us a really good future uh, trees planted by streams of water. And we want our friends and our family to be there with us too, 
planted by streams of water, not like the chaff that gets blown away. So please, we beg you, Father, please would you be gracious to those in our family and our friends whom we love and who don't yet know you and who are walking in the way of scoffers. Please, would you open their eyes to the truth of Jesus. And please, Father, would you be pleased to use us in our weakness and in our smallness and in our stupidity to say something helpful and useful that will show them that Jesus is good and would encourage them to look to him. Please uh, keep us from the uh, temptation to be quiet. Please keep us from the temptation uh, to be arrogant and win arguments. Uh, And please help us lovingly um, present Jesus to our friends in warm and gentle and compelling ways. And whatever happens to us, whether that is Uh, Lots of people, our friends and family uh, become Christians or whether we just get malice and slander for for the rest of our life. Please, would we commit ourselves that way of life for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.